General Advice This section contains some helpful general advice that applies to whichever combination of focuses and techniques you use in your personal study. Keep these things in mind as you read through the Bible, and you'll be well on your way to getting the most out of your studies. Revisiting Topics Remember that just because you've studied something once, you're not somehow done with it. The Bible is a deep, deep well of wisdom, and we can spend a lifetime drawing truth from its waters. There's a lot to gain from revisiting familiar passages and concepts. As you learn and grow and experience more of this physical existence, you may begin to notice aspects of familiar verses, or even unfamiliar ones, that apply in ways you hadn't considered before. Sometimes a deeper understanding of the Bible, or just more life experience in general, can help us notice facets of God's Word we had overlooked on a previous study. Don't hesitate to study a topic you've already explored. You never know what else God might want to teach you. Context makes things clearer. We've also put a heavy emphasis on context when it comes to Bible study. Whatever zoom level you decide to use in your own study, remember to zoom back out to get the bigger picture. If you're studying a single word, take a close look at the verse you found it in. If you're studying a verse, consider the focus of the chapter it belongs to. If you're studying a chapter, remember that it's part of a larger book with a larger narrative. And if you're studying a book, think about how it connects to the 65 other books of the Bible. In other words, whenever we focus on a single part of the Word of God, it's critical that we view it as a piece of a larger puzzle. It's easy to take a single word or verse, or even an entire chapter or book, and come up with a variety of conflicting interpretations. So many of those interpretations, or misinterpretations, disappear when we let the Bible speak for itself. Whenever you're looking to understand a piece of that puzzle, Ask yourself if your interpretation conflicts with the rest of the book. It's easy to take a single verse or even chapter out of context. If a passage seems to be saying something radically different from the rest of the book, you may be missing some important context. The rest of the Bible. Since the entire Bible is inspired by God, the spiritual principles laid out in one book will never cancel out the spiritual principles laid out in another book. The words of God complement and build on each other. The words of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the Word of God, as we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, offering deeper insight into the spiritual intent behind the commandments. See Matthew 5, 17 through 48. There are no contradictions in God's Word. If we think we've found one, it's not because God made a mistake or changed his mind halfway through the Bible. It just means we still have more to learn, that we're missing part of the puzzle. Keep studying, keep asking God for his guidance and insight, and trust him to show you the answer in his time. Misusing and Abusing Scripture When we study the Bible to try to understand what God wants to tell us, that's called exegesis, from a Greek word meaning to lead out of. When we interpret the Bible to try to make it support our own views, this is called eisegesis, meaning to lead into. We can either lead God's thoughts out of Scripture and into our lives, exegesis, or lead our own thoughts into Scripture, eisegesis. Eisegesis is one of the easiest traps and greatest dangers we can fall into as we study God's Word. By reading our thoughts and opinions into Scripture, rather than letting Scripture shape our thoughts and opinions, we set ourselves up to misuse and even abuse the Word of God. This happened early in church history. 
Peter warned that in Paul's letters there were some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. 2 Peter 3.16 One of the best ways to make sure we're employing exegesis and not eisegesis is by paying careful attention to context. Context will clear up the majority of our scriptural misunderstandings. We should also be aware of something called confirmation bias, the tendency we all have to focus on information that supports our own views, ignore anything that might contradict those views, and force vague or ambiguous information to support what we already believe. In other words, if you want the Bible to support your beliefs, you'll find a way to make it support your beliefs. That's also eisegesis, and it results in our cherry-picking the words of God we like, ignoring the rest, and missing his message entirely. The harder route, and the infinitely more valuable route, is to allow the Bible to show us what to believe. That's what exegesis looks like, and as you can imagine, it's often uncomfortable work. This kind of study also requires us to be in close contact with God through prayer and meditation. There's a reason Israel demanded of its prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, Isaiah 30 verse 10. Finding out that we've been looking at the world incorrectly, that we need to change the way we live or think, is hard. It's much nicer to hear that nothing about our lives needs to change. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he was quick to misuse scripture to try to prove his point. Satan tried to convince Jesus to jump off the roof of the temple to prove he was the Son of God, quoting from the book of Psalms, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Matthew 4, verse 6, compare Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. Jesus, as the literal word of God, saw the problem with Satan's twisted logic and answered, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew 4, verse 7, ESV. With nothing more than a couple verses grabbed from the Psalms, Satan's logic may have sounded right. But it was ignoring the context of the rest of the Bible. God promises to protect us, yes, but he also expects us not to intentionally put ourselves in danger just to prove a point. Never forget that our adversary the devil knows scripture too, and he's had thousands of years to practice helping people twist it to their own destruction. If we don't want to fall for his deceptions, we need to stay close to God and ask him to help us see what he is saying, rather than just seeing what we want him to say. Common Word Study Mistakes to Avoid Whenever your Bible study leads you to examine a word in greater detail, it's easy to get in over your head. Biblical Hebrew and Greek are both their own unique languages, and the powerful tools at our disposal can trick us into thinking we understand those languages better than we actually do. Below are some of the easiest mistakes to make when studying a biblical word, as well as advice on how to avoid making the same mistakes in your own studies. Root fallacies. A word is not always the sum of its parts. Just as with English, Hebrew and Greek words can often be broken down into one or more root words. Sometimes these words can tell us more about the meaning of the combined word, but sometimes they can't. Consider the English word butterfly. We can break it apart into two other English words, butter and fly. But 
Does that mean butterfly is actually a reference to an airborne dairy product? Obviously not, and if you speak English, you know that instinctively. Sometimes the root words tell us what the combined word meant at one point in time, but because language changes and evolves over time, it might not always have that meaning. The Latin root of the English word nice, for example, describes someone who is ignorant and unaware. Today, nice means something completely different. A nice person is probably kind, considerate, and thoughtful. Even though its roots refer to ignorance, that's not the correct way to interpret its usage today. We can make these mistakes when studying Hebrew and Greek words, too. For example, one of the Greek words for sin, amartia, Strong's number G266, comes from the Greek words for not and mark. In a literal sense, amartia means missing the mark. Over 300 years before the New Testament era, Aristotle used amartia to describe the fatal flaw that takes down an otherwise heroic character. That wasn't exactly the way Jesus and the New Testament writers used it. Sin certainly involves missing the mark and can surely be a fatal flaw that destroys a righteous person. But amartia carried a deeper meaning by the time the New Testament was written. In the culture of the time, it would have meant a departure from either human or divine standards of uprightness. Walter Bauer and Frederick Donker, A Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament and Other Early Christian Literature, 3rd edition, page 50. In the context of the Bible, Christians would have understood it to simply mean sin, straying from the laws and standards of God. The Bible's most direct definition of sin, amartia, is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4, King James Version. The law is the mark, and either we hit it or we don't. The image of aiming for and missing a target is a powerful image to help us understand one form of sin, but we can also look at the target and do nothing, turn our backs on the target altogether, or be completely unaware that the target exists. Instead of defining amartia only by its root words, we could more accurately and biblically define it as being guilty of breaking the eternal law and standards of God, either intentionally or unintentionally. Missing the mark could imply a failed attempt to hit a target. In other words, when we try not to sin, but sin anyway. But in terms of God's law, we can also sin by completely ignoring the target, by taking no action at all, or even by purposefully rebelling against God. It's more important to define a word by the way it's used in the Bible than it is to define it only by the sum of its parts. Using modern, up-to-date lexicons can be very helpful. Semantic anachronisms. A word doesn't always mean the same thing in every era of time. Regardless of a word's roots, its meaning can still change over time. If we treat the meaning a word has now as if it were the meaning it's always had, we end up with something called the semantic anachronism, stuffing the meaning from one time frame into the context of another time frame. In Galatians, Paul listed sorcery as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 verse 20. That's a good translation, but if you look at the Greek word he used, you'll see that it was pharmakeia, Strong's Greek 5331, a word that eventually came to mean pharmacy. Does this mean that modern medicine is the same as witchcraft? Does it mean that pharmacies are a work of the flesh? No, it just means that the word has meant different things at different times. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, pharmakeia wasn't a building where people could buy helpful medication. It was a sorcery especially exercised through the mixture of substances to make potions, especially used of poison-making. 
Lexham Research Lexicon of the Greek New Testament. Importing our idea of a modern pharmacy into Paul's concept of pharmakeia changes the meaning of what Paul was saying. He wasn't labeling medicine as evil. He was talking about the act of employing magic, especially for creating potions or poisons. It's not hard to see how the concept of pharmakeia evolved into pharmacy, but that connection doesn't imply a shared meaning here. There are plenty of other examples. Those who approved of Stephen's death in Acts 7 verse 58 were called martis, Strong's number G3144. It's the same word that produced the English word martyrs, but in that time and in that context it simply meant witnesses. Today, we would call Stephen the martyr, but the biblical account says that the martis were witnessing his death. Paul wrote that God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, but the Greek word for cheerful is ilaros, Strong's number G2431, which gives us our English word hilarious. The Bible isn't telling us that we should be hilarious givers, but cheerful ones. Our modern-day idea of hilarious wasn't attached to the first-century concept of ilaros. In the early days of the church, Peter and John found themselves on trial before the Sanhedrin. When the rulers, elders, and scribes saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Acts 4 verse 13. The word for untrained is idiotes, Strong's number G2399, a word referring to someone lacking professional skill. Over time, passing through Latin and Old French, it became the English word idiot. Members of the Sanhedrin were amazed with what Peter and John knew despite their lack of formal education. The Sanhedrin did not think Peter and John were idiots. Likewise, Paul wasn't calling himself an idiot in speech in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 6. We can avoid semantic anachronisms the same way we can avoid root fallacies, by using up-to-date lexicons to understand what a word meant to the people who were using it at the time. Expanded semantic fields. A word can't mean everything all at once. In English, the word spelled B-O-W can mean a ribbon tied on top of a present, the front of a ship, a hair accessory, a weapon for firing arrows, and the act of bending from the waist as a sign of gratitude or respect. But it can't mean all those things at the same time. When an English speaker uses the word spelled B-O-W, it's fairly obvious from context which of those meanings applies. If someone wrote that he or she was going to go hunting with a bow, it would be ridiculous to assume the same person was planning to attack woodland creatures with an expression of gratitude. You'd know he or she was planning to use a bow and arrows. When a concordance or a lexicon shows you all the ways a Hebrew or Greek word can be translated, it's a similar situation. Not every possible translation applies every time that word is used. If we try to do that, we're expanding the semantic field, trying to force definitions into places they don't belong. For example, the Hebrew word chara, Strong's number H2734, is a verb that has to do with becoming hot, but its actual meaning depends on context. It often means to become angry, but it can also mean to fret over something, as it does in Psalm 37 verse 1, to do something with zeal, care, or vigor, as it does in Nehemiah 3 verse 20, to contend or compete with someone, as it does in Jeremiah 12 verse 5, or even to enclose something, as it does in Jeremiah 22 verse 15. But just like the English word spelled B-O-W, 
it doesn't mean all those things every time it's used. The best way to avoid expanding a semantic field is by being hesitant to swap out words and definitions in our studies. If there's a word or phrase that's difficult to translate, you'll find out about it by comparing Bible translations or looking at commentaries. But generally, we should study Hebrew and Greek words to understand them, not to retranslate them using definitions that we like better. 